The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a weekly look at Portland's nonprofits and do gooders with interviews, music, and documentaries. You're listening to the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X Ray FM, brought to you by the Media Institute for Social Change, a public interest media lab that works to inspire, empower, and engage emerging media producers. Learn more online at mediamakingchange.org. I'm Carly Meisberger. Today on our show, we're focusing on the work of the National Indian Child Welfare Association. This is Phil Bussey. It's the Nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm talking with Sarah Kostelik who is the executive director for the National Indian Child Welfare Association. How are you doing? Good morning, Phil. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Let's so so works to support the safety, health and spiritual strength of American Indian and Alaska Native children along the broad continuum of their lives. What are the two biggest challenges uh, that that you are hoping to address? Great, good question. Um, so, we're concerned about the overall safety and well being of Native young people uh, and their families. And so, uh, our organization is um, concerned with preventing child maltreatment, of child abuse and neglect, uh, whenever possible. And uh, the way we do that is by building the capacity of American Indian and Alaska Native tribes uh, to support young people and their families. Uh, so I'm sure we'll say a lot more about that, but in a in a nutshell, that's what we do. Yeah, and and I want to I want to talk a little bit about that relationship that your organization then has with uh, individual tribes, um, because again, your organization is working with the tribes to provide capacity. So not working, this is not direct services, but you're sort of the the you're 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 the the person behind the curtain, as it were. Yeah, we think of our role as an intermediary, really helping to support tribes in building their capacity. But but let's talk about that relationship for, for a minute. Um, so an interesting piece of our history uh, is before we were the National Indian Child Welfare Association, um, we, we were founded here in the Northwest and we serve tribes here in the Northwest. We're the Northwest Indian Child Welfare Training Institute. So we were founded in 1983, uh, shortly after the passage of some federal legislation, the Indian Child Welfare Act. Um, and we grew out of the demand, the need that tribes had for support, for consultation um, around building services for kids and families because uh, somewhat unbelievably, it wasn't until 1978 uh, within my lifetime uh, that tribes were recognized as having the authority to be involved in the lives of their citizen children and families, their member children and families. So it wasn't until the late 70s that um, that, that acknowledgement uh, was made and that finally the first tiny little dribbles of federal resources to support tribes in developing programs uh, for kids and families was first available. So this is a fairly new development if you think about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the history... There's been massive changes over the past, I don't know, what do we want to say, two generations? Uh, if we're saying the late 70s until now, in terms of sovereignty, uh, in terms of federal support, yeah. uh, which, is, which is remarkable to think about. Um, 
I just want to roll back a little bit because you threw out a couple of dates, 1978 and 1983. I don't think of 1983 as the most uh, federally generous year. Uh, Ronald Reagan was in office. It was fairly conservative. Yeah. Uh, this was about taking away government support for a lot of uh, um, social services. Why, why then? What happened? Right. Uh, so Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act in 1978, um, and it was right on the heels of some very important research uh, that showed that at that time, so in 1976, when this research was done, 25 to 35 percent of all American Indian and Alaska Native children were removed from their families. So just think about that staggering statistic. 25 percent, right? one out of four children. A quarter to a third of wow. all native children were removed from their families. And 85% of those kids were placed in non-native homes. Uh, and that was no accident. So there was um, incredible bias and cultural uh, misunderstanding and uh, a fair amount of um, judgment about uh, what was in the best interest of Indian children. So we're seeing massive forced removal of native kids from their families and placement in non-native homes at that time. And so Congress intervened. So Congress intervened to stop that uh, mass removal and uh, to try to preserve native families and to counteract the bias in the system. So you could really think about this as like putting up guardrails around uh, correcting state and private child welfare agency behavior. So basically Congress said, this has got to stop. Uh, we're not going to tolerate this anymore. This wholesale removal of native kids from their families is not okay. Um, and we're going to put in place some minimum standards that literally say, uh, states, you can't remove Native kids from their homes unless this uh, set of circumstances is going on. So it's really a way to try to, um, if at all possible, to keep Native kids at home with their families safely. Uh, and if not, then a lot of other important protections that mean that Native kids um, have a much more uh, likely chance of staying in their extended family or in their community rather than being um, removed hundreds of miles away from their family. So that was a really important set of protections uh, that Congress put in place. Um, and then basically, after that acknowledgement, tribes uh, were very eager to start developing some programming to try to figure out what kinds of services family needs. Uh, to really try to train uh, workers, tribal child welfare workers, to most effectively engage with families. So as tribes were trying to do that work here in the Northwest, um, they were looking for resources. They were trying to figure out uh, what should the programs look like? What kinds of services do families need? How should workers engage with our community uh, to be effective? Um, and so, uh, so there's a real need for curriculum, for training, um, and so that was the role that our organization played. And so the fact that we came about in 1983 was uh, less to do with what was going on with the, the federal government at that point in time, and much more to do with what was happening in tribal communities. And here in the Northwest, um, some initial local funders like the Meyer Memorial Trust, uh, who are very instrumental to us in getting this body of work off the ground, starting to develop some really important curriculum for tribes, um, thinking about our heritage and helping curriculum, our positive Indian parenting curriculum. Uh, those were some of the early products of our association when we were still focused here in the Northwest before we became a national organization. So, so I, I mean, I think what's really what, I mean, many things are, are interesting and, and troubling 
about everything that you just said. Uh, so uh, up into the late 70s, one out of three, one out of four children being removed from families. I, 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 and yeah. 40 years later, is that something that's in the past or are you still dealing with that disruption from federal policies from, from that long ago? Um, those federal policies have had lasting impacts. So that intention to disrupt families, uh, to remove children from their family, from their identity, from their culture um, has done serious harm. And it's not just this uh, latest uh, wave of um, policies and interventions that we've been talking about, about uh, removing kids from their families, but actually this has been going on for hundreds of years. If we think back to the boarding schools, uh, if we think back to all of these quote unquote well-intentioned policies of separating kids from their families, because it was uh, believed at the time to be in their best interest to assimilate them, to become part of mainstream culture. And often that happens in the guise of wanting to give kids more opportunities. Um, but if you uh, grow up with a swimming pool in your backyard or you get to attend a better school, but you don't know your family, you don't know who you are, you don't know your culture, um, then that's, uh, that's a real problem. That does significant lifelong damage uh, when people grow up disconnected from their family, from their identity, from their culture. Um, and so, uh, so the work that we do um, is on a couple of fronts. One, it's very much on the advocacy front. So uh, we continue to advocate for the uh, implementation of the Indian Child Welfare Act. So your point, it's been around for more than 40 years. Um, yet this is still uh, a little known federal law. Um, in the states, uh, this is implemented in very different ways. Um, it wasn't until 2016 at the end of the Obama administration that we finally had some federal regulations um, that guided states as to the consistent uh, uh, interpretation and implementation of ICWA. Um, and so, uh, so this, is, this is really challenging. Um, but that advocacy work is really important to making sure that, um, that the intent of the law, the spirit of the law um, is followed, that kids and families do have every opportunity to stay together when it's possible for them to do that safely. Um, and so that advocacy is important. At the same time, we do a lot of work around training. I mentioned some of our curricula. And so we, uh, we train frontline workers, uh, tribal workers, state and county workers, um, the training function is important. We have an annual uh, conference in April every year, which is Child Abuse Prevention Month. Uh, and we uh, bring together about 1,500 frontline social workers, uh, child welfare, children's mental health, juvenile justice. Uh, we bring those folks together um, around some training opportunities, networking, information sharing about what's working in different places. Um, we also do Oh, is, ahead, that, is that because I mean, you are you got you are headquartered in Portland? So is that conference here in Portland? Our conference moves around, so we go to different regions of the country, of different host cities and host tribes. Uh, this year, we were supposed to be in Seattle, uh, so here in the Northwest, um, but we're actually having our second uh, virtual conference. So last year, just uh, weeks into the pandemic, we converted our in-person gathering to a virtual conference, and this year we're virtual again too. Sarah, I want to shift tack just a little bit um, because in, in the name of your organization obviously is national and you've talked a little bit about starting as a regional organization and growing into a national one. Um, I would 
obviously there are reasons for that in that you're dealing with federal laws. However, I would think you also need to balance the fact uh, that you that you're dealing with regional tribes and regional differences. Mm -hmm. And that would seem to be sometimes uh, is, is that a tricky balance that that um, what maybe works in 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 uh, the Pacific Northwest does not work in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you do you see those differences on the ground level uh, geographically? Great. Yeah. Tribal diversity is real. So there are 574 federally recognized tribes in the United States. Uh, 229 of those, about 40% are in Alaska. Um, so the uh, history of federal Indian policy um, has been different in Alaska. Uh, and of course, um, Alaska became part of the United States much later. Uh, so there's kind of a different history and set of dynamics there. Uh, but certainly tribes are incredibly diverse. When we think about um, the impact of colonization, the tribes on the East Coast had first contact with many of our colonizers um, and the impact on those communities, uh, on the ability to continue passing on their culture, on, um, on their language, their extended family structure, their, their resource endowments, their geography. Um, there are so many elements of diversity here. Uh, and many of them do impact both the challenges that families face and tribes uh, resource endowment and ability to do something about them. Uh, so the work that we do um, does account for those differences. Um, and uh, we're a culturally based organization. We put culture front and center. We say culture is our single greatest resource for helping families. And part of the way that we do this is by engaging with tribal communities, understanding that they are very much the experts uh, in their own lived experience and that the solutions to the problems that they're seeking are right there within their own community. So as the outsiders who are partnering with tribes, uh, we come in saying, we're, you know, when we're invited, we come in and say, we're happy to help facilitate a process. We have lots of tools. We know about what's going on in lots of different places in the country. Uh, but the process that we're going to go through is really about um, drawing on your expertise, drawing on your cultural tra traditions. It's really um, looking for local solutions to the challenges that you're facing. And we believe that the wisdom is in the community. We're just there to help partner and to reveal um, those solutions, to reveal that wisdom. Um, that, that, and and that, that would seem to be challenging and rewarding. Uh, <laughs> challenging in that obviously it, it, it um, you know, you're not just uh, swooping in with, here's the remedy and here's the package you know, and yeah. go, but you, there's a lot of listening that needs to happen. I Absolutely. And the way that we go about this work is a community driven process. So um, our strong belief is that the whole community has to be involved in keeping children safe, that it's not just the role of a formal child welfare agency or of law enforcement or of mandatory reporters, um, but actually keeping kids safe, keeping um, eyes on kids is the role of everybody in the community. Uh, we all have a role in making sure that kids and families are doing okay. And any one of us, uh, when we're seeing somebody struggling, can ask, how are things going? Do you need some help? Is there anything I can do? We don't need to wait for bumps and bruises. We don't need to wait until kids get hurt. We don't need to wait until a formal agency intervenes. 
um, it's up to all of us to make sure that kids are doing okay and uh, to try to help families find support when they need support when they're when they're dealing with challenging situations. Yeah, and I, and I think that points to a, a, a larger theme in, I mean, in any caregiving, um, but, but in particular with, with juveniles, uh, that idea of preventative or reactive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whether we're waiting to see the, as you just said, the bumps and the bruises, or trying to get a little bit further uh, upstream yeah. And, and so that, that, that those don't happen, um, you know, is, is, is it, how are those decisions made where to apply those resources? Well, let's start with some of the biggest drivers, right? So oftentimes the way that um, practice is structured depends on the funding source. So when we look at uh, funding for child welfare in this country, the vast majority of it are federal funds. And the the largest federal funding sources um, are are only for uh, services after children are removed from their families. So that's a problem. So our our financing system incentivizes removing kids before services and supports can be provided. Um, And so um, there have been some recent attempts to shift that balance a little bit. Uh, So in 2018, Uh, Congress looked at this, it's called uh, Title IV-E, Adoption and Foster Care Assistance. It's part of the Social Security Act, but that's the single largest federal child welfare funding source. Um, And Congress did allow for a portion of those funds uh, to be moved to upfront, to be moved to preventive services. Um, And although that authorization happened uh, several years ago now, there's still uh, a lot of work at the federal agency level to try to figure out how to implement that. Uh, particularly because those dollars have to be used for evidence-based practices, uh, for practices that we know um, have some evidence of working uh, with certain populations. That has to be frustrating because, I mean, right, I mean, there has to be some indicators that there may be problems coming up, right? And, and that if you put the money in early, it's going to be much more efficient and better spent um, rather than than, like you said, waiting for evidence of abuse or neglect. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But uh, the implementation challenges of trying to figure out uh, what the federal government is going to allow states and tribes to use these funds for, uh, that challenge is ongoing. So there, you know, there's a clearinghouse of evidence-based practices that's slowly being populated States and tribes are only allowed to use uh, the funds for things that fit in the in those buckets. Um, so we're really looking at what kinds of services and supports have a strong research base. Uh, we know that that's a biased pool um, of interventions. That many interventions, particularly culturally based interventions, there's not a body of research that supports these things for the most part. Uh, but tribal best practices, things that have Uh, that tribes have been doing for thousands of years um, that have been effective in serving kids and families, guess what? Those things aren't in the evidence-based clearinghouse. Um, But this is a place where Oregon is really leading the country. Um, So our state has done tremendous work in uh, in recognizing tribal best practices and putting in place a rigorous process for tribes to be able to uh, submit their own interventions Um, with enough information about how the service is structured and what the outcomes are um, that allow tribal practices to qualify 
um, as being an evidence-based practice because they are tribal best practices. Um, and many other states in the country are not doing that. We're really at the forefront of that movement. Um, and this is one of the areas where other states have a whole lot to learn about what's happening here. Um, that sounds like a good place with a little bit of home state pride to stop and take a music break. Sarah Kostelik is executive director for the National Indian Child Welfare Association. And now you have a song that you brought in. Do you want to set it up for us? Yeah, so this is uh, this is a song called Bubblegum. It's a really um, kind of high energy, fun song. Um, it's in Yupik. So the group is called Bamua, which is uh, Yupik Inuit for encore or uh, or do it again. And so this is just um, a song that I love that gives me a lot of energy. <laughs> It's the nonprofit Happy Hour on X-Ray FM. I'm talking to Sarah Kostelik, who is executive director for the National Indian Child Welfare Association. We just have a few minutes left. I want to talk a little bit. We've been talking a lot about some, some, some big picture ideas about how your organization supports uh, uh, tribes throughout the country uh, to, to build capacity to uh, support families and children. We're going to talk about you for a little bit. Uh, you've been executive director for five years. Um, what's changed most? What's stayed the same? 
good question. Well, <laughs> um, I've been executive director for five years, and this is my first um, executive director role. Um, but I've been at NICWA for 10 years. Um, and I came to NICWA as part of an intentional, culturally based leadership transition. So our founder, um, a Seneca man named Terry Cross, uh, was getting ready um, to, uh, to make some plans uh, for eventual retirement and, uh, and was well aware of the literature that shows that the transition from a first leader to a next leader is one of the most vulnerable times in an organization's history. Um, and, uh, and he was also aware of a number of organizations that fail um, in that period. Um, that have a lot of trouble getting from the founder, the person with the, the passion uh, for the mission, and the next leader who comes in. And so uh, Terry's vision was to look to our native cultures um, to guide that transition. Um, because in our communities, in our cultures, we know how to do good transitions. And just because somebody gets older doesn't mean they leave the community or they don't have a valuable role anymore. They just play a different kind of role. Uh, so I was really fortunate to be recruited to NICWA uh, 10 years ago to participate in this multi-year leadership transition where Terry gave me more authority uh, and more uh, kind of support um, over a four-year uh, leadership transition. So highly unusual in the nonprofit Absolutely. sector. Uh, what a luxury as a person taking an ED job for the first time to have this opportunity to kind of grow into the role uh, with an incredible mentor uh, supporting me. Um, but we had a culturally based leadership transition. And so I've been in my role as ED for five years uh, and Terry is still a member of our organization. He's still part of our staff. Uh, he works uh, part-time and um, you know, he's our elder in residence, our senior mm. advisor, um, and still very much part of the work. And so that was, that was our intention. You know, Terry said he was ready to give away the administrative headaches, let somebody else worry about the fundraising and the HR issues and the IT problems. Uh, and he got to do that the work, the work that he really loved, the work with communities. And so um, so that's been um, a real gift to me uh, to learn how to do this job um, with Terry there. We always had this kind of mental image of, you know, standing behind with his hand on my shoulder, right? So I'm the person who's leading the organization, but he's always said, I'm here to, you know, do whatever you need. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, it speaks both to the philosophy of the organization, uh, you know, as well as, as the continuity of it. Um, and I think what's what's interesting too, you now serve on a number of boards, right? You serve on on mm. Underscore, which is a, uh, a journalism uh, endeavor, uh, uh, Generations United, and Council on Accreditation, uh, which both sounds like you're busy. But I'm also wondering how serving on a board plays into some of your leadership philosophies, um, you know. And, and yeah, let's go from there. Yeah, you know, I, I believe that board service is one of the single best free professional development opportunities you can have. Um, and so uh, I serve on boards and I encourage my staff to serve on boards. Um, and my board of directors uh, also, many of them serve on other nonprofit boards. So I just think this is some of the best um, exposure you can get to different ideas, different ways of doing things, and also some real insight into what 
uh, trends there are across the sector, what other uh, similar organizations are experiencing or not, and also some um, creative ways to try to solve common challenges. So thinking about staffing models and organizational structure and business models. Uh, I think there's a tremendous amount that you can learn from being on boards in addition to what you can contribute um, to the stability and fundraising and program work of other organizations. Sarah Kostelik is executive director for the National Indian Child Welfare Association. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Phil. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is made possible by Beneficial State Bank, a certified B Corps that holds to what it calls a triple bottom line of social justice, environmental well-being, and economic sustainability. If your organization or business is interested in underwriting our show, please email phil at mediamakingchange.org. The Nonprofit Happy Hour is a production of the Media Institute for Social Change and KXRY Radio, X-Ray FM. Our host is Phil Bussey. Our executive producer and editor is me, Carly Meisberger. Archives of past shows can be found on our SoundCloud page. Questions, comments, or ideas about the show can be sent to info at mediamakingchange.org. Thanks for tuning in.